Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I am your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is Season 5, Episode 13. Thanks, everyone, for coming along on this journey. We're going to round out with 20 episodes in this Season 5, coming out the end of winter, at least the winter here in Canada that goes on forever. But at the end of March is when we're going to finish the season. So we've got a few more episodes for you, and today is going to be a valuable listen Ray Aldred is with us today. And if you don't know Ray, he's Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred. He's a husband, father, grandfather, but he's also a status Cree from Swan River Band Treaty 8. He's born in Northern Alberta, Canada, and he now lives in Vancouver, Canada, but he is the Director of Indigenous Studies, a program at the Vancouver School of Theology. And he's going to be talking to us today about Indigenous storytelling and what we can learn about Jesus from Indigenous culture. So it's a conversation that for a lot of us, I think you're probably not very familiar with, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have Ray on the podcast. So I can't wait to bring him to you. And one of the reasons I'm bringing him to you is because of Wycliffe College. Actually, Ray Aldred is from Wycliffe. Uh, he did his master's, or sorry, I did my master's in theology while he was studying at the doctoral level at Wycliffe. And so we crossed paths a little bit while we studied. If you don't know, Wycliffe College is a sponsor and partner of this podcast. If you go to wycliffecollege.ca slash digital, you can see why I chose the school. It's an amazing opportunity for you to grow in theology, to grow in discipleship yourself. But you're also just going to be exposed to this level of person, level of thinking. You know, Dr. Ray Aldred is really a foremost thinker on theology in Canada from an Indigenous perspective. And it was amazing to to be around him and to learn from him at Wycliffe. So, hey, if any of this kind of stuff sounds interesting, I encourage you to check it out. And as I say every week, right now they have some free swag they want to send you in the mail. So if you go to wycliffecollege.ca slash Digital, hey, go check it out. And uh, we'd love for you for you to let them know you are dropping by the page so they can send you some fun stuff in the mail. Thanks also, of course, to Compassion Canada. I am really excited right now. I'm doing them myself. These version devotionals that are from Compassion. They're really committed at Compassion Canada to actually equipping Christians and the church for mission and ministry. And that's why I've partnered with them and why I love talking about them. But beyond um, beyond just these tutorial videos and these podcasts that we're doing together, by the way, have you checked out the tutorial videos? We'd love for you to do that. There's a link down in the description below, wordmadedigital.com slash tutorials. But they really want to support you, the church here in Canada. One of the ways that we can do that as the church is to grow physically, emotionally, spiritually, so that we can be people who are ready and able to serve others. And so there's this amazing opportunity through, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, a lot of us do on our phone. I know I do. And that's where I'm doing these devotional plans right now from Compassion. There's some great plans that you can pray through scripture, consider ways to maybe you want to simplify your life in the midst of, you know, really a busy and stressful time, or you want to look more at what the Bible says on a particular topic to do with compassion, to do with the poor, to do with poverty and injustice. There's so much of that going on and we're trying to maybe find out what to do about that. I encourage you to join with me. Let me know if you're doing these devotionals. The link down below in the show notes is going to get you there at compassion.ca. But hey, if not, go to YouVersion directly, the Bible app on your phone, and you can find all the compassion devotionals there. Okay, today on the podcast, as I've said, we have Dr. Ray Aldred. He's a reverend as well. Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred is ordained and an amazing indigenous leader in Canada, but has so much to teach us about storytelling, about what happens when we put our chairs in a circle instead of in rows, and just a lot of brilliant insights that I think we're going to get from his wisdom. So enjoy the conversation today. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go.
Ray Aldred, it's really an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, you're welcome. It's good to be here. Um, before we go too far, um, could you introduce yourself to to everyone listening? Um, tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, my name is Raymond Aldred. I was born in northern Alberta in Grand Prairie Hospital in 1960, and uh, I have status in Canada as an Indigenous person from Swan River Band in northern Alberta, by which is near Canyon Creek, near Faust, and uh, which is north of Edmonton about, oh, let's see, four hours, something like that. Anyways, I'm, uh, I grew up in Northern Alberta, then, uh, got married there, had four kids, went and studied theology when I was 28 years old. I did an undergrad degree in theology in Regina, Saskatchewan, and then I did a master's, an MDiv there, and then ended up oh, a bunch of different places. Eventually at Wycliffe College, in uh, Toronto. And now I'm the director of Indigenous Studies and the uh, interim dean for a year at the Vancouver School of Theology. I'm married and I have four adult children and five grandkids. Wonderful. And are, are your are your family or your grandkids, are they anywhere near you in Vancouver or are they spread all over the country? My daughter lives not far from me with two of my grandkids. And then... Uh, I got a few more in Grand Prairie where my son and daughter live. Then I have a my son, my other my oldest son lives in Montreal. Okay, okay. Um I'm curious if we can go back to you said at twenty eight you decided to go study theology. Yep. Um why did you do that? <laughs> Doesn't hmm. seem like a typical path. Well, when I was 19 years old, I had a deeply moving religious experience. Hmm. Some people, some people call them, call it the born again experience. When I was 19 years old, so I quit drinking and I quit using drugs, and I was kind of. I said, God, if you help me quit, I'll do anything you want me to. Hmm. And then not wanting to continue my because addicts always have these grand grand illusions of what they're going to do and I just didn't want to do that so I just stayed worked I worked in a I made plywood for Canadian forest products and I went to church and uh, worked in a church like served as a lay person but then I always had this sense that I was called to ministry full-time ministry so when I was 28 my wife and I decided we would go so we sold our house I moved to Regina Saskatchewan (laughs) so when you moved were you moving from a reserve or where were you living at that time I was living in I was living in Grand Prairie oh okay you were in the city yeah um I'm curious to know from you you know, as a young person, you know, before you'd say you had really a spiritual, a powerful spiritual experience, you encountered Christ uh, at 19 years old. Um, what was your cultural experience of Christianity? Um, was that a positive thing? Was it negative? Was it a thing that white people did? Was it part of your community at all? Hmm. Well, mostly, you know, because my mom... My mom didn't want us to grow up on the reserve, so we didn't. And, okay. Uh, because she just felt there was too many, it was too hard. And mm-hmm. my grandfather had lost his status in the Second World War when he joined the army. So they were actually kicked off the reserve. And so, oh. and so then... They grew up there, or my mom grew up there, and so then that wasn't part of where I grew up. And but 
I don't know. My mom and dad taught me how to... We lived out in the country, not very far out in the country, I suppose, but my mom and dad taught me how to fish and hunt and those kinds of things. So I was familiar with those things. My my grandfather used to speak the language, but I never learned it, and my mom didn't know it. And uh, my experience, my mom talked about how she raised her three younger sisters. So then I asked her how she managed that, and she said, I prayed a lot. So she was a Catholic, devout Catholic. Mm -hmm. But when... When, my, when she married my dad, my dad wasn't Catholic, so she left the Catholic Church because they wouldn't, they wouldn't agree to her marriage to a non-Catholic. So they got married uh -huh. in a United Church. So then I was christened in a United Church. But when I was 11, oh, I said, I'm, so when I was 11, I said to my mom, my dad doesn't go, I'm not going either. So hmm. that was the end of church. Yeah. What I yeah. remember as a kid was uh, I was about seven or eight years old. I was walking with my neighbor. And he said to me, he said, God died. I said, well, that's too bad. I mean, seemed like a nice guy. <laughs> I said, well, what is, it? what is it? What does it mean God is dead? And he said, it means we can do whatever we want. Huh. So, that's what I remember about church when I was a kid. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um, you know, as you say, growing up in the city, growing up in um, some sort of a religious experience of some kind before you could reject it for yourself. Um, and then and then at 19, when you had this encounter with the, the Lord, or however you describe it, um, was that in a religious setting? Or was that, you know, alone in your room? Or um, how did that happen? With my brother. You? Huh. With my brother. So a couple years before, my brother had had this experience at an evangelistic crusade. And his life was transformed. He, like he changed the, the way that we noticed it is he didn't party anymore, hmm. but he seemed happy to me and I was miserable. So hmm. I asked him how to be a Christian. So oh, he talked wow. to me about it. And well, uh, it he was, said that he said that if I asked Jesus, he would like put his spirit in me hmm. and that made sense to me. So I did. Hmm. And I had this experience that God put his spirit in me hmm. and changed me. And I felt incredible forgiveness, which wow. felt like, it felt like thinking, of, it felt like a realization that you were really loved and that God knew everything that I had done and he forgave me. I had that, I don't know, it was like an assurance. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. And the realization that Jesus was God. And not dead? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but you see, I grew up thinking because Jesus was the son of God meant he was less. Hmm. And somehow at 19, when my brother told me that, I thought about that Jesus was the son of God, then it occurred to me that because he was the son, he must be just like his father. Hmm. So to me, that meant that he was God because I'm just like my father. So. And these that. relationship are all indigenous kind of understanding of, you know, relationships. And so that that's one of the things that I've always thought about that you don't go to non-indigenous culture to learn about relationship. You go to indigenous culture to learn about relationship. Well, tell us more. Tell are, me, tell us more about that. Well, if you think about it, a lot of the people in mainstream society are 
Some people call it white society. They mostly worry about their rights. You know, they're always, so it's, it's like they're trying hard not to be connected or have no responsibility to anybody. Just mm. to have their rights to be able to do what they want to do. And uh, I found that in, in Indigenous understanding, there was a communal understanding that no one had a right to tell me what to do, but I was responsible for my actions and how they impacted everybody around me. Mm-hmm. And I needed to be mindful of those things. And I could, I could understand them. So I think people who grow up in more aggregarian societies have a kind of a more communal understanding. Maybe the more you get into the city, the less you have that understanding. I don't know. I think in some some scholars, there'll be some scholar somewhere (laughs) who argues with me and takes that. (laughs) Well, I think in, in some of, um, the communication theory about how communication tools affect a community. Uh, We talk about uh, what happened when we got literate and got books that we began, our brains began to think in these lines and rows, like you would see on a page. And we used to think more circular, more about the community. And then we began to um, separate ourselves, literally like a book, like the ideas on a page can be separate from ourselves, they can be on a page, other, but then also even how they are organized. Um, it started to become how people organize themselves together. As people began to become literate, they started to put themselves in rows and lines. Right. Um, but of course, in indigenous culture, one of the first things I think about as a visual is circles, um, uh, gatherings of people who sit not in rows. Uh can you tell us tell us a little bit about that? What is sort of behind that, or what 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 could we learn about um, the community life there? Rather than talk so much about circles and stuff, what it what it what it what it's about is understanding the connection that everybody has in land, hmm. like in the okay. land that the land connects us, and all of our hmm. relatives are connected. So, yeah, I expose in the directions. If you think about the directions, you know, the four, there's four, there's six directions, at least six directions. So then, and if you understand, and that in those, all those directions that you're connected to everything. So that's kind of that communal understanding. Because just because, yes, circles. So then, for some indigenous cultures, like the Cree, you know, and the the Northern Plains and the Lakota, and which are very popular, those are the popular ones, popularized in a lot of media and stuff. Circles are important, but on the West Coast, you know, they are longhouses. They sit in a rectangle. Right. So. Yeah, you're right. But and then or, orality. You know, you were talking about communication theory. Walter Ong said, and he, I remember reading something on him and I agreed with him that when everybody sits in a room and reads from a book, even if we're reading out loud, if we're all reading from a book, Shades of Anglican Prayer Book, it's still an individual activity because we're each holding our book and we're reading it together. But when you listen, so when... When you listen and you just, one person is reciting and you're listening all together. Now that's a group event. So Hmm. that's where the storytelling comes in because it's oral. So then everybody sits wherever you are, if it's in a circle or a circle's fine, but you're listening. Everybody's listening Hmm. and everybody's connected. Because there's a shared memory, and it has to do with the land, and it has to do with the struggle that we've been through. I heard one person related to, I remember one time we were at a conference, and there was a whole bunch of speakers. And then afterwards, this individual said it was like a jazz quartet, because one person would stop 
And there, these, this wasn't rehearsed. And the next person would just pick it up and just carry on. And it's like mm-hmm. everybody knew the story. Everybody knew what was going on because there's that shared land and shared story. So that helped me thinking about how community works and how, and then that helped me in my theology to think about these things. About this passing of story? Well, also individual and corporate identity and how Hmm. that makes a difference. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to know more about that. I mean, my understanding is narrative is really one of your specialties in theology, the storytelling. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, I don't even, I, I, even that I'm struggling in what questions to ask because it's such a broad topic, but I'm so curious about story, how to tell a good right. story, what makes a good story, what are we missing out of the stories in the Gospels or, you know, in the whole Bible? Right. Well, when I first started working in, the, in churches, I noticed that when I went to many, some communities inadvertently, I'd say, you know, that story when, you know, that story about Jesus when, and lots of people didn't know that story. They didn't know the gospel, but they Mm -hmm. knew different, they they knew different theological doctrine. Like they could tell me doctrine, but they didn't know the stories. So Hmm. I thought, man, that's interesting. So then I wrote a paper about, called The Resurrection of Story. Oh. Very postmodern title, because I put of in brackets, so you, you could read it, Resurrection Story. You know, it was always you know, <laughs> my, my way of being cute. And, uh, and so, but I just, I said, you know, Indigenous people, and I was riffing off of George Lindbeck's uh, Nature of Doctrine, and it, and it occurred to me that Indigenous people in Alberta, at least, the ones that I had encountered in the Prairie Province, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, a little bit in Ontario, and then a little bit in British Columbia, they'd only had two theological approaches. Missionaries either were propositionalists, so they reduced the gospel to this set of propositions that you had to believe to be a Christian, Mm -hmm. but their propositions ended up replacing the story, the gospel story, so you couldn't get at it unless... You came through their set of propositions, which made them in control all the time, too. So indigenous people never got to own the story, the gospel story. Wow. And then the, on the flip side, the more, uh, you know, classic liberal mainline denominations, they came and they said to us, oh, you don't need that. What you had before is good enough. You just, you know... Just, you know, you have this feeling that, you know, this religious feeling, well, that's all, that's all, all religion is. So that's all you need. Mm-hmm. And I, and again, you see, everybody's own religious feeling ended up replacing the gospel. You never, you never got the gospel again. There's other people decided that's not what you needed. And so again, another group telling us what we needed. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we actually got to, own the gospel story and it became part of our our culture that we own this and we say how we understand it it becomes one of our stories and in my dissertation i said that it would become part of our story bundle you know because everyone has a set of stories that they teach from and -hmm. wouldn't it be cool if this became part of that Wow. Of course, some people were worried. What do you mean? Isn't it? Doesn't it have to be the story? And what do you mean? It's just mm. one of the stories in the story bundle. And oh, I like I that the story bundle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm curious about this idea of owning the story. Um, what would what do you think would be an indication that someone does own quote unquote own the story or a community has embraced it to that level um, where it does move beyond the words on a page or a doctrine? What what do you think? What does that look like? Well, yeah, well, it's that heart language idea I got from uh, 
Well, one part I got from Leslie Newbigin, who said, hmm. in order for something to be in the heart language, and he was getting it from the Apostle Paul's own testimony in Acts, hmm. when Jesus appears to him and speaks to him in Hebrew, which is his heart language, and says, you know, why are you? Why are you persecuting me? And then Newbigin says, for it to be in the heart language, you have it has to embrace the the uh, social and economic aspirations of a people. It has to take seriously how the religious categories function in the culture, and it has to take seriously the art and culture of hmm. of that group. And it also has to take into account any encounter it has had with the gospel, but but it has to be put into those categories to be in the heart language. And I added one more, and I, I got it from Henry Nowen, and I said, it has to be on the level of human suffering. It has to be on the level of human suffering, because that's where Christ meets us. And that's heart language. So if it's a heart language, then it's less about literal language and more about the way you connect. I mean, it might include language, like a human language, but it's it's beyond words or dialect and more to, it cuts to the heart. Yeah, it's on, it includes more than just reason. Hmm. It, it, there's an emotive quality. So, hmm. and indigenous speakers and storytellers are great at there's emotional weight to what they say. So, I just hmm. think that that's how, you know. And then Jesus, when he taught with parables, he takes takes us in, and then suddenly, and then suddenly we're caught, and we hear the call to the, we hear the call of the gospel, you know. That's that's what happens. So then when I was doing ministry, one of the ways that I thought about this, it had implication was that uh, if a program didn't start with on the level of emotions, if that's didn't if it didn't start there, then the program wasn't much good in an indigenous context because there was no mm. there was no uptake. It wasn't that the cognitive aspect or the informational component of a program was that was important but if it didn't begin on on the level of emotion then people just didn't listen and i think that's mm. the same with good preaching should speak to emotion that's why the pentecostal preachers are they're right you know they're right that you need to feel something if you don't feel something you won't do anything so. I mean, it's so interesting. Uh, yeah, this idea of, I think, the the rationalization, the science movement that has removed us from, we want to sort of um, put our emotions aside um, because somehow they'll, they'll deceive us in some way that our emotions aren't to be fully trusted. Uh, we have mm -hmm. to use our, our brain to dissect the story, the text, the theo theological position. Right. Um, and yet story isn't told for that. Like Jesus isn't using a parable for it to be a literal, <laughs> a literal thing. It's, it, it's not a scientific rational experience. It's people being shocked by um, the prodigal son or being shocked by the good Samaritan. Um, these people who are on the outside being, and he's telling a story about how they're on the inside. Right. And well, it's meant to, we miss some of that, I think, as, as a modern yeah. reader. There you go. I like that last comment you made that I think it's all, it's just, it's not just, just rational. Guy smarter than me, Stephen Toulman, talking about the Enlightenment, he makes the point that it was reduced, kind of re reduced communication, and really modernity was the quest for this perfect language that would translate truth hmm. to across time and across cultures with no distortion. And people tried, you know, math and different sciences. 
and but he says in that whole in that whole and so then yeah it became just reason but or just just logic just pure rational thought and uh the problem with that is you lose a bunch you actually need your emotions and you need vision and you need you know vision and you need dreams and you mm. need all of those things working together so just mm. lest we fall quickly into either it's either this or that i'm not i'm not saying that i was just talking about ordering and when i in an indigenous context sitting with people older than me i saw them do this thing that they would they would be able to understand my emotions and through my emotions understand what i was really longing for and searching for even when i didn't know how to put it into words and then they would just cut through all that and they would just ask this question and it would just and it would bring clarity in my mind hmm. i i i just never to me that was indigenous wisdom hmm. and i learned a lot and well, tell, tell me more about uh, some of this wisdom. You know, I, I think there's so much that I miss as a European background, <laughs> kind of a Christian around, like, I mean, you mentioned even dreams, for example. Um, do you have anything to say about what, how dreams inform our spiritual life? Um, or as you say with the elders, what it's like to sit under an elder's storytelling or teaching, um, even just the level of respect for an elder that is so lost. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that it helped me, it helped me to understand the gospel better because, you know, you uh, the way that the elders used to talk, these older guys that I would sit with is they would... They're talking about this subject, and it's in the subject's in the middle, but they're talking all the way around it from a bunch of different perspectives. And that was different than what I had experienced in, mm. in uh, higher education because, you know, they just, higher education, they, they really followed Rene Descartes' approach to education, you know, Break it into the smallest pieces that you can and take the simplest piece first and fully describe that piece and then describe all of the different way that these different pieces fit together. And then that's that's Western education. Hmm. But these elders didn't cut things apart. They would tell these stories and these stories all had to do with this subject that we were talking about. And it seemed like they wouldn't come right out and tell you. You had to figure it out. That was the learning. You had to figure it out. Now, I did have some instructors in college and university that were like my first language teacher who taught me Greek and Latin and Hebrew. He, he would not give charts. He said, no, no, no. The whole point is to make your own chart. You know, whereas, you know, some people just give you these charts and they tell you memorize. We learned by doing. And you made the chart. So that was closer. But indigenous wisdom, they just tell these stories and you're supposed to figure out what they're talking about. So then every once in a while, I remember this one fellow, one elder, he'd say to me, I'm trying to tell you something. I said, I know, and I'm not getting it. So then he'd just keep going. <laughs> but he'd never come out. Next. And then finally I'd say, oh, this is what you're saying. And he'd just, he'd just smile and nod his head. And we'd sit there for hours. And then huh. I finally, sometimes I went away. I just, I don't think I ever did get it. But. <laughs> well, it's not unlike what we read in the Gospels where Jesus would tell these stories and parables. Yeah. Uh, and people would just leave confused, scratching their heads, yeah. you know, and I think of like where he talks about, for example, in the parable of the four soil types, 
the, right, you know, right, how right. the gospel is received on various yeah, yeah, types yeah. of soil. Some of it takes root and some of it doesn't. And he right. basically says, if you don't even understand this, how are you going to understand anything else that I'm saying? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and they still don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. The gospel writers in some places say later they understood this after mm. Jesus had rose, risen. So hmm. I think about that. So then that was, and the other thing was just the way that story worked. And so that had implication for, so, I mean, my real simple, when I first started thinking about this, halfway through my MDiv, I just, all I did was, I just imagined that the characters in this Old Testament, it was Old Testament, we were, I was studying, uh, I, I forget what, I, was, I think I was studying prophets of something, some century. Anyways, I, all I did was, and I was reading Genesis, and all I did was just imagine that the characters in this story were indigenous. That's all I did. I just imagined hmm. they were indigenous. And because this story was about Abram and on the land, suddenly there was a motion in the story that I never saw before. Hmm. And it came to life. And then I wasn't, so then I wasn't doing this. Uh, it just added something to the story that wasn't there before. I could wow. see it. And I could feel it. Wow. And I saw humor. Suddenly I understood why Sarah laughed when the angel said, I'm going to call you Abraham because you will be the father of many nations. And Sarah laughs. Well, why shouldn't she? The guy's so old. Like, what <laughs> happens to old men? And he, yeah. she's, he's going to impregnate her? Like, she laughs. It's yeah. funny. She knows a little bit. She Of anyone in the story, she knows it best that he's not maybe capable of it. <laughs> And if you told that in if you told that in a Cree context, if you if you told some old man, old Cree guy, I'm going to call you father of many nations. It's funny, and then <laughs> suddenly, but then you also get the you get this the I don't know what to call it. You you get that point because suddenly one of the messengers says, "Don't laugh." And you just feel the gravity of it. Don't laugh. Mm. It's going to happen. And she gets it. And I got it. So that's wow. one of the things that happened. And so I wasn't trying to cut up some things all of a sudden. I just was thinking about narrative. And so I just began to think about it. That improved my preaching and my understanding of the epistles and the scripture as a whole, because it was talking about a story. This was about a story. And that made sense. And then the job mm -hmm. of the minister then was to apply this story to different situations and just be really good at telling the story. This was liberating because mm -hmm. then it took away the need to be so creative or original. No, original. Because all I had to be was faithful. I could be creative but i just had to, all i had to be was faithful i just had to tell these stories but yeah. tell them in a way that i'd never told them before and then i just thought about a hermeneutic of love now i heard that from my hermeneut my hermeneutics professor and i asked him years later and he said he think he heard it from uh oh i can't remember tom wright he thinks he heard it from tom wright but i don't know so in a hermeneutic of love, and this was the what I mean by owning the story. So in a hermeneutic of love, because of our relationship with the story, it will change. So then I've written papers like a reinterpretation of repentance. And what I was trying to get at was that when an indigenous community, own, like when it's theirs, when they, they say, okay, this, this is ours then it would change it. But it wouldn't make it become something it was never meant to be. And in the same way, the gospel would not change indigenous people into something they were never meant to be. Hmm. 
and that's like a relation love relationship between two persons each person's changed because of the relationship but they're they don't become something they were never meant to be so i thought that should be the relationship between the gospel and indigenous people instead of all the caricatures of theology in the church that had developed because it had been used to abuse people so and i just found story was helpful yeah i'm and that's where you know as a uh, recipient of my own history um sometimes you know when i hear the stories of of what was done by the European Christians towards indigenous people groups. There's this piece of me that's, that's the, how did they, how did they miss the point of this? <laughs> how did this happen? How did this happen? And I know that's maybe in some way naive because I know it happens again and again and again. Um, but, but it's like, how did we miss the story? How, how did we miss the plot here? Um, yeah. Yeah you know, to subjugate a people group under another people group. Uh, right. How did, how did we miss the plot? That's uh, <laughs> not the way of Jesus. He's so the opposite of this and so much well, damage has been done. Yeah, it's like you said, it's easy to get, get caught up in it. And I think trying to work cross culturally, I used to see that all the time because I suppose you could reduce it to one group of people looking down on another, which is always mm -hmm. a temptation. So ethnocentrism tells us is the feeling that you have when you see someone doing something radically different than you and you think it's kind of silly. Why do they do it that way? That's kind of silly. And that's ethnocentrism. And then you add to that political power and inequality, and then it yeah. turns into racism. So. Yeah, But usually it starts off, people think they can improve someone else because they think, oh, those poor guys are not part of society. We need to help improve them so they can hmm. fit into society. Hmm. And I used to say, most, most, most non-Indigenous Christians in Canada are paternalistic at best when it comes to First Nations people. They're paternalistic mm -hmm. at best and racist at worst. Because paternalism and racism are on the same continuum, I think. Hmm. So then the relationship... Towards people being inferior and needing help. Mm -hmm. Like in paternal so would mean that they need yeah, help yeah, yeah. from a parent. Right. So then... Because uh, most Indig most a friend of mine used to say this all the time like uh, non-indigenous people think that they have something to offer indigenous people so the western church thinks they have something to offer indigenous people but they don't think the indigenous people have anything to offer them intrinsically mm. valuable wow. And so that, and that's really Christendom too. Like that's the church. We're 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 complete in the church. We don't we don't have any need of anybody else. But we have this mission to because we've got to figure something. it out. Yeah, because to take to you. Hmm. And uh, I find it more. I find it. I found it a better place to come from. Whereas the spirituality of a lot of indigenous people was that. I'm incomplete. I have a very limited perspective and I need more people and other ways of understanding. And I need the animals to show me how to live. And I need the other people to teach me because I'm only one person. I only have one perspective. This should produce humility in me. So it goes back to what I said about directions. So when you mm. think about the East and the south and the west and the north and up and down and you think about all your relatives you realize i'm all of, i only have one perspective that's not very much hmm. i should listen more talk less so i can understand so 
That's what I saw in Indigenous people. Humility. Mm. Mm. And do you see that in young people? Because I think what you're describing, I would think of as a trait that comes in my culture, I would say it comes with age, that young people are typically, they know the know-it-all, the less humble, I got it all figured out, don't need the generation above me. Um, And then as you age, you realize your smallness, your need for others, um, your need to serve the world in some meaningful way and participate. Um, but is that not, is that not the same? Would you say in indigenous communities, it's, it's brought young people are trained in a different way? I don't know. Hmm. I was going to say, if you, if you have near death experiences, you realize you need people. (laughs) Hmm. So, so if you live, (laughs) if you live long enough to nearly die. Well, no, no, but I mean, uh, if you know how to hunt and fish and all those things, mm. it gives you confidence that you can live. But it oh, also helps you understand. It also you understand that if if so. Then a friend of mine said he said the basis for the spirituality of our people was in this in the fall you pray for good hunting, and in the mm. spring you give thanks for good hunting, and inevitably. People from the city will say, well, how do you know it was good hunting? And the answer is, because you're alive. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you didn't die. And if it's not good hunting, you didn't, you know, that's kind of. So then living in connection with the land does two things. One, it makes you, it gives you confidence. Because the land looks after us. The land has always looked after us. It'll care for us. She's our mother. She looks after Mm -hmm. us. And so, but it also produces humility. Because you realize you're really dependent upon, you need to be dependent. You're dependent upon creation. Right. So... Yeah, I mean, the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church knows this. They they talk about this that creation is the place where we live out our relationship with the Creator. But most people have forgotten what it is to be in relationship with creation, so they struggle mm-hmm. in their relationship with the Creator, and they've forgotten that creation is sacramental. Well, Indigenous. Don't say more about that. Talk about the sacrament. Well, that, you know, a sacrament is where you experience God comes close. Yes, in the sacraments. Well, I'm riffing off Father Shemaman. So he said, hey, in the Eastern Church, creation is the place where we encounter the creator. So then Hmm. it's sacramental. It's not just these two things. It's everything. So and this also is the understanding that at any time the creator could speak, do something powerful through his, through creation. And so as a result, then we hold all creation as sacred because at any time the creator could speak through creation. Hmm. Instead of... uh, narrowing it to just certain times of the week or certain places. There are special places, but it was that all of life was to be lived that way. Hmm. So that was kind of... There's there's this interesting move now with... um, you know, the, the pandemic life that we're living globally, I've seen a lot of writing. I've experienced this myself, uh, but also in writing, it seems to be a trend across countries is that people are desperate now to be in nature. Um, people who are experienced this pandemic are looking for hiking, 
uh, space outside, to be listening to birds, to experience the heat of the sun on their face, to be near water, to go somewhere quiet and tranquil in a forest, that this like desire, there's something in us that's longing to be outside. And uh, it's almost like it's probably been there, but we were too busy in our regular routines to even notice yeah. that we craved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann in his book, The Land, he notes that uh, as Israel became more localized into cities, it its incidence of idolatry increased. And huh. it's, it was it did better when it was in the wilderness. Wow. Living in a tent. So Yeah, there's um, lots of there's a there's a, a perception of greater freedom out in nature and we probably all feel kind of hmm. like there's a loss of freedom. I was thinking about it the other day why people would protest against wearing masks. I think it might be part of it might be they just feel powerless. This thing mm-hmm. makes us feel powerless, and mm-hmm. maybe if we go out and protest, loss of control. It, yeah, it makes us feel like we're doing something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, but then, yeah. Anyways, I was trying to develop empathy because some of those guys just piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose we shouldn't say that. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> Oh, man. So, you know, if we were to spend some time in nature, which, again, we seem to be craving more than ever. I know I seem to be hiking every weekend. I live downtown Toronto, and I try to go every week oh, yeah. uh, out of the city. And yeah, uh, I- what should I do? You know, I'm, I'm curious if there's something. Is there a prayer or a posture or something I could say when I entered a forest or something I could do there as a practice um, to connect with the creator? Is there something that would be a tradition that you have that you could offer to us? Ah, hey, well, you know, a friend of mine, Randy Woodley, he used to, you know, when you wake up, you go find water, which was the idea of you go to the river and then you just, it's the whole idea is, and Carl Bart picks up on this too because we're created. He said it's about being thankful. You just mm. offer thanks, thank you, mm. Creator, thank you for this day, for my relatives. So I usually think I face the east, and I think about the wisdom and the good things that come from the east. Because on the plains, when you get an east wind, that's when you know it's going to rain. And particularly if you're living in southern Saskatchewan, rain is a good thing because you don't get a lot of it. So you think about all the good things that come from the east wind. And then you face the south and you think, because I grew up in a Nordic country, Canada's a Nordic country. You think about the warm wind that comes from the south and it always is healing. There's healing and abundance that comes from the south. And then you face the west because that's where the sun goes down. You think about that you're getting older And then our ancestors there, they live in the West. And one day I will go to be with my ancestors. Hmm. And you think about that. And then you face the North. The North wind is brings, you know, that's when, where I grew up, when the wind switches to the North. And here on the coast too, when the wind switches from the North, it's going to get cold. And you could get get a storm. And that's Hmm. the mystery, the hard things that come. Hmm. And then you look down to the earth and you think about our mother, the earth, and how she cares for us, provides for us. And then you look up to the creator and you're thankful that it's a good world. This is a good hmm. world and we're thankful. Thank hmm. you, creator, for this day. It was wow. a, it's good. It's good. So then that's kind of one way. But I have a good I Beautiful. went to school at Wycliffe. Well, and I lived in, you know where Wycliffe is. Yeah. In, and I lived in residence with my wife there, the married student residence, right? I could have shown up in my classes in my pajamas. Flippers. Never did. <laughs> yeah, never did. But. Yeah, I know the residence well. Yeah, yeah. 
this old well, one day building. I was running. I, yeah. I used to go yeah, I used to go running. And I was there for like maybe a month, maybe two months. And my feet never touched the earth, just always cement and pavement. Hmm. And I was out running and I went down into that. If you stayed on that path, it takes you to the brick, the brickyard or the brick Dawn Valley. Yeah. Yeah. The brickworks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was running up. I forget what street it was. And then I just ducked down onto that. And it's just a little creek. And I heard the creek and the and the sound in the creek and I was and then there was trees and there was this creek and you it drowned out the traffic noise and I, I started to cry and I mm-hmm. thought this is it's the first time in a month and a half I I I was I could hear I could hear the forest mm-hmm. first time and I thought oh I just I didn't like that I didn't like being there. And I cried because I missed the land. Yeah. Some cities are better than others, you know. So here's my plug for city development. Like Montreal, Vancouver, uh, Winnipeg, Saskatoon. In their urban planning, they make sure that there's always green space, always green space. Mm -hmm. You can always find green space, always. Toronto's the worst you could go years and never see any. It's just, it's the worst. I don't know what they were thinking. You gotta go look for it. That That's city. true. It's just, it's terrible. Maybe some of the suburbs are better, but downtown Toronto's terrible place to live. Terrible. <laughs> Well, you know what? I often go to the lake. That's where that's where I head. I'm I'm a walking distance from the waterfront. The lake here in Toronto looks like a sea or an ocean. It's so big. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember and going down there. And that's sort of a centering place for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, see. Now, just as sorry, go ahead. <laughs> just as we're you know, I'm aware of the time and trying to wrap up our time here together. Um, you know. How how do people find you? I mean, obviously, you're, um, you're teaching this Indigenous Studies program at the yep. Vancouver School of Theology. Um, you know, if people... <laughs> just one sec. No, it's <laughs> the okay. dog is losing. Had, the dog, it's dog. dinner time for the dog here. That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, if, um, you know, if people wanted to study with you or read some of your work, where could they find you? Uh, Hey, you should. This is my plug for a course. So the first two weeks in January, I'm teaching an intensive, hmm. and you could do it asynchronously. You don't have to do it, you know, at the same time because it's all Zoom, and we'll record it and everything, and I'll put it on the web. It's a, called uh, Indigenous Spirituality in the Christian Faith. That's what the class is called. So Vancouver wow. School of Theology, and you take it for credit, audit it. That's one place, and usually. Sometimes I do stick things online for different folks. Did a Henry Nowen podcast recently. I think you can find that by Googling it. And and if you're out in Vancouver, just come and see me in my office. I'll try to make time for you. When when the COVID thing is down. Yeah, when COVID COVID is over, we can travel more. We'll just yell at each other through the glass. (laughs) <laughs> through our masks but um you know I, i'm gonna link to all of that in some of the notes um some then, of the notes and then, every, the and then every summer for two weeks second and third week in july we do an indigenous summer school now this year we had to do it online and who knows what it'll be like next year but typically that's in person we come and we live together for two weeks on the campus of the University of British Columbia, and you can't find a prettier campus in Canada than the University of British Columbia. It's like right on the ocean. It's stunning. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Right near Wreck well, Beach. Ray, thank you so much for your time. You've given us hey, some things welcome. to chew on, to consider. Um, and to be, I just to be challenged by um, new ways of thinking and how to tell better stories and and own our story as people of faith in Jesus. So thank you so much. 
Hey, you're welcome. You take care. Yeah, you do. All right. Dr. Ray Aldred, thank you so much for joining today. It was really an honor to have him and um, to make that possible through Wycliffe College and our connection there, both being students previously of the school. I encourage you to check them out as well. And I want to give a shout out always to Compassion Canada, amazing friends and partners who support and serve the local church. They're doing that through making this podcast possible. They're doing that through the tutorial series we're doing together. They're doing that through these amazing free devotional you can find on the YouVersion Bible app or at the link down in the show notes below. We want you to get connected to something that maybe you're looking for inspiration. You're looking for something fresh. You're looking to really just simplify your life in the midst of a busy and stressful time. I hope that you'd consider joining me on these devotionals to root yourself in Christ and his word and really just give practical resource for how you can respond to injustice, to poverty, to the situation that's going on around the world right now and what we do as Christians to have both perspective and faith in it. So check it out. Check out Wycliffe College as well. Of course, it's always down in the show notes. And hey, next week, coming up next, we have Doug Paul. Doug Paul has written a book called Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World. But we're going to be talking to Doug all about innovation and Christians as pioneers of the future, how in the past we were the pioneers and how we can harness that again, kingdom leaders to innovate for kingdom goodness in the world around us. So I hope you join us next week for that conversation with Doug Paul. Can't wait to see you. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.